Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We are in... Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10 today as we continue our study through Nehemiah. And this one's going to be, do you know what it's like to try to explain something and you can't? Not because you can't remember someone's name or something. I mean, because you just can't put it into words. You're out for a morning stroll. You see a sunrise or a sunset, depending upon when you walk. And it just takes your breath away, but you can't describe that later. I've discovered that uh, I can see a beautiful view in West Virginia. I still love the, I still love the mountains. Com- coming here from the Great Plains, I still think this is beautiful. Um, but I can't capture that beauty on my phone, no matter how hard I try. The picture, I look at the picture and say, this isn't beautiful. The view is spectacular, but I can't get, seem to get that. But words are the same. Um, or, or you hear a song, this happens to me, and, and, it, and it brings tears to your eyes, but you can't explain why. You can't explain that, that feeling. Maybe, maybe that happened today for, for some people. Many of us, I would like to think, feel that way when we try to describe our faith. If I could adequately describe my relationship with God, there wouldn't be a non-Christian on the planet. If I could figure out how to put what I know to be true, what I know to be true about God's love, if I could put that into words... I even became a preacher, so I could try to put that into words. Can't do it. Not entirely. I can, I, I can, get, I, I can do the best I can. But if I could put it accurately into words, the world, would be, the world would be saved. How do we speak of the peace of God and the love of Christ to our friends and family? How do we, how do we describe the peace of Christ? Today is one of those days that I'm, the reason I'm going to do more scripture is I'm, I'm at a loss for words struggling through the, the passages. I think Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10 are very beautiful chapters. And I think the scriptures are going to do a better job than I can of putting into words. See, I, I, think, I think that you will agree with me that the problem of the church is putting it into words. We hope, I, I do think one of the problems that we have in the church in the 21st century is an enthusiasm problem. You read about the great revivals of years past, and those seem to be a thing of years past. And I think that one of the things that we are up against is that for Christians, for the church, Christianity has become routine. It's become just something that you do on Sunday mornings, something that you go through. I, I'm, you guys know I, I'm a third-generation preacher. I am convinced that the num- the average church the average church in America changes preachers every 4 years. Okay. Church of Christ Christian Church a little longer. Um, the average church changes preachers though every 4 years. I'm convinced that that's a mix of the preacher hitting a hitting, hitting a, a a rut that he wants to get out of in 4 years and the church 
feeling like, well, it's not exciting around here anymore. A new guy will make things exciting. Let's, and I think that that's a mixture of, I, th- I think that a lot of times it's both. And both feel it's not exciting like it was four years ago. The honeymoon is over. It's time to move on. And I think that, that there is a, so here we are. I've been here eight years. Thank you for letting me stay eight years so far. I'm grateful. I think that it's easy, if not the four-year slump, the eight-year slump, whenever it is, I think it's easy to just kind of be like, okay, we're coasting now. And coasting is dangerous. Um, I, I've said before, I like the phrase, a rut is just a grave with the ends knocked out. Uh, we, it, coasting is only ever downhill. It's never a good thing. So we come to church every week. We kind of pat ourselves on the back, feel self-righteous for coming to church. Maybe, maybe why, why do we come? Maybe it's out of a sense of duty. I, I appreciate, I like honesty. There was, a, there was a girl that used to go to our, my church in Illinois. I, I lo- I, I, she's not a Christian any, anymore. I, appre- I could see it coming. I appreciated her honesty. I come not because I like it, she said. I think the Bible's true, but I wish it wasn't. I think God's the only game in town, and I resent that I have to come to church to play his game. I appreciate honesty. I really do. If people are feeling that, I'd rather know that than have them harbor that in their heart. I think there are people that come to church. They believe this book is true. They wish it wasn't. They don't like all the things that are in it. And I don't blame you for that. There are parts that I struggle with. (laughs) We read about Jephthah and his daughter this morning in Sunday school. There are parts I struggle through. We, We may not like what this book says, and maybe we start to resent that God wants us to behave differently than the rest of the world and he calls us to a higher standard. And, and we think, yeah, I think that this is true. I just wish that it was. I think, I think people go through, and, and it's okay to have those phases. We just don't want to stay there. I think for some people, the assurance of salvation can become routine. Um, I'm saved, so it doesn't matter what I do, skip church, how I behave on the weekend. Um, and, and our relationship with God, we take for granted. I, I appreciate, I, I believe, you, you can disagree, but I am a firm believer that marriage was given to us as an example of God's love for us. I don't think that God's love is an example of marriage. I think it's the other way around. I think, for those that are married, your relationship with your husband, your wife, is meant to show you how much God loves the church, what he gives for his church, and what we should be after. I know our marriages aren't perfect. The church isn't perfect. We're being made perfect, but we're not perfect. Um, and and I, I, in the same way that marriages can lose that honeymoon and some of them can just spiral just gradually and slowly to where people say we're not in love anymore and if we're honest we haven't been for five or six or ten years or twenty and you hate that that's a tragedy but if you don't make an effort to keep that that relationship with your spouse vibrant it can fall apart and people do that all the time it's not one fight it's just a series of little tiny events. In, in, the ch- in the church, we can do that. It's not just one thing. It's just a bunch of little things that trickle away and, and hurt our faith. We are called to more than attendance. We are called to a vibrant, enthusiastic relationship with God. So, so how do we, we... We had it. 
<laughs> we didn't. When we became a Christian, there was that aha, epiphany moment. I get it. This is important. I'm excited. I, I was thinking about this just yesterday. I remember in college, I was a freshman in college, and there was a, there was a upperclassman, he was a junior or senior, and he was, if, if you live around Lincoln, Illinois, a lot of the churches, and there are a lot of restoration movement churches around Lincoln, Illinois, a lot of the local churches would hire a student as a part-time youth minister or something like that. So at my grandparents' church, they had a student, they, they had a part-time youth minister who was a student at the college. So one day I said, hey, can I just hitch a ride with you, go to visit my grandma and my Grandma and my grandpa, and see, see, see them, and, and easy ride, half hour, hour away. I didn't have a car. Uh, I remember he and another guy were in the car. They were a senior and a junior, and I'm freshman in the back seat. And I'm, I was new at college. I'd only been there a few weeks, and I was excited and enthusiastic about Bible college and going into ministry. At the time, I was going into Bible translation was, was the plan. And I, rem- I remember clearly... Uh, the one in the front seat said, "One in the front seat said, oh, he sounds so enthusiastic and excited.'" And the other one said, "He'll get over it." And I remember just being crushed. I don't want to get over it, but it is a struggle to not get over it. Elder's wife back in my previous church had made the comment. She said, "I just wish I could have that that feeling that I had when I became a Christian." And I, at the time, that hurt me, but I. I've matured, I'd like to think, a little bit since then, and I get, what, I get what she's saying. I do. There was that enthusiasm when we were madly in love, and if we're not careful, it, it, if we're honest, it trickles away. And so we want to. That's why we, get, we couldn't do this without the church. Right? We come together on a Sunday morning. It is a little bit of a pep talk. It's not supposed to be. I, the sermon is much more than that. But we want the sermon to be a little bit of a pep talk. And, we want, and, and more than the sermon, each other. We want to encourage each other. You know, we talk about the weather right now, and it'll get anybody down without this. We want to lift each other up. We want to help each other out. And that takes more than attendance. Um, so I want to talk today about, uh, through, through Nehemiah, corporate building each other up, enthusiasm and encouragement. Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. That's how they showed corporate mourning back then. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. We've read about that in previous weeks. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. We can all do that math. For a quarter of the day. And spend another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, Kanani, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Okay, so imagine for a minute, six hours corporately reading the Bible together, and another six hours in confession of sin and in worship. 
These are people who were devoted to Scripture and devoted to the worship of their Lord. I think, let's talk confession. I think one of the problems that we have in the 21st century is transparency uh, and honest, open honesty. We, we live in a time when, we, when it safer, seems safer to play your, your cards close to your chest and, and not to trust others. You live your, this is very, you know, America was founded on this very much. England, you do your thing, we're going to do our thing. You live your life, I'll do mine. Don't tread on me. Live free or die. Get off my front yard. We, we, we know the American mindset. And it's easy to pull that into our faith. But then we read about corporate worship, and we're not a very corporate country at the end of the day. We're, very, we're, we're big into privatization. And, 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 and on a national level, speaking on you know, 4th of July, uh, Independence Day weekend, on a national level, yeah, I, I, I like independence. I really do. I like to do my own thing. The Bible doesn't call for that. The Bible doesn't call for Lone Ranger Christians or you do your thing, I'll do mine. Um, we, we, desi- we struggle with, we desire a deeper level of relationship and at the same time, we also want that privacy. We don't want to be vulnerable. This is where the internet get, is so insidious because it allows us to interact with millions of people online and they can't see me, and they can't know the real me, and we get superficial interactions online that gives us the illusion of a relationship, but not true transparency or intimacy. So we talk about sin, and, and, and let's be honest, we all struggle with sin, right? We all struggle with sin. Confessing it, if, nobody's perfect. I confess sin, you have sin. I mean, we, we, as a book, the Bible just boggles my mind. If I were writing a book, it wouldn't be like this. The sins of the saints are spread out before me. Abraham, Moses, David, Jonah, Peter, Paul, they're not perfect. Their sins have been left for, for thousands of years to look at later. Um, they are human like you and I. Sin is what separates us from God. Uh, It's not a fun little trite phrase. It's serious. It's deadly. So deadly that Jesus came and suffered and died to help us get past sin. Um, it's, It's a big deal. We make it out as no big deal. It's just part of the church. But it is a big deal. It's deadly. And this is where confession comes in. You can't read the Bible and then say confession is not a big deal. It is. It's Old Testament, New Testament. Pride is the root of all sin. That has been said before. I still believe that. Um, selfishness, me. Unless we confess and hold each other accountable and are transparent, we. if I could get rid of my own sin on my own, I wouldn't need Jesus, right? So I can't do it on my own. So I know that. And God has given me the church. He gave each other as a community. He's given me the church that I don't have to do it on my own. The Holy Spirit speaks through my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so trying to get over sin on your own is a matter in self-control, but myself is weak, and I I can't do it on my own. We can sit in our pews and feel guilty when we hear a sermon, but then we go home and we go back to the way that we were. 
We have to change up the variables. We have to, and this is where accountability is a big deal. On my own, if I could get rid of sin on my own, I already would have done it. So the stuff that's in my life that I'm struggling to get rid of, change, change the equation. What's new? Bring in someone, bring in accountability. I'm not saying just find somebody random in the church and just unload your life on them. That's not healthy at all. But we are, we are called to be there for each other. We are called to be the church, a community, not just a bunch of individuals. There's something to be said biblically about corporate confession. This is when the church is the church, that, and we protect each other. Somebody comes to me and says something, and I don't look down on them. I, in fact, I'm impressed that they came and they, and they told me what they're struggling with. Um, uh, guard, your, guard your hearts, because pride will destroy you. Confession helps breed humility. We are called to be humble. When we're humble, we can put to death ourself, which is pride. Ourself is the root of sin, and we can turn to God. Now, we're going to read a big section. Uh, picking up where we left off in the middle of verse 5. I want to read what these people said. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them. You, gave, you give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You've kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in, the rock, uh, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. And they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, 
You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, lauding to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites, who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you, they committed awful blasphemies, and so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them, and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were in rest, they again did what was evil in your sight, and then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruined, ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets. And yet they paid no attention. And so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples, But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all the hardships seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings, leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have been just. You've acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. They read scripture for six hours. We got a reasonably good summary of of the entire Old Testament there in a chapter. Do you hear what they said? They praised God for, for what? For, for loving them through it all. For loving them in their disobedience. When they were absolute schmucks and didn't deserve it. God still showed them compassion. I certainly don't deserve the love of God. I don't deserve the salvation of Jesus Christ and I'm fooling myself if I think that I do. 
and if, but, but God is love. And my loving Father has shown me far more love than I deserve. And if I have any desire to be godly, even the slightest inclination to be Christ-like, then I need to show compassion to every person that God made in his image. And that's all of us. Everyone. I wish I could put into words the love of God. I wish I could tell other people about it effectively. I wish I could show it effectively. I wish I could set an effective example of the love of God. But I'm imperfect, and it's hard to talk about it. It doesn't excuse me from trying, but in any of that, in in talking, in showing, in being an example, in loving, it doesn't excuse me if it's imperfect. I've still got to try and try and try and try to get better. I just wish I was there. I wish it was perfect already. We live in a day when our world is very incompassionate, uncompassionate. uh, I don't know. Uh, We only look out for ourselves. There was there was a show. I don't want this to be political, but I don't, I don't want to also. There was a show called The Apprentice. And a line was made in the show, never make a sacrifice for someone else. Well, my whole faith is based upon, that is the core concept of my faith, that someone made a sacrifice for me and that's why I have grace in my life. My Lord Jesus sacrificed himself for me while I was still a sinner and didn't know that I needed saving. That's how much he loved me. So, will I be inconvenienced for others? Love is inconvenient. I must tell of his love. Lord, help me to be loving. Forgive me when I'm not. Give us the chance to share the love, the compassion of God. Look with me at at the last verse of chapter 9. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were, and I promise we will skip the genealogies. We will skip the names. So we jump down to verse 28. We'll skip 27 verses of names. The rest of the people, priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us, or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we... I turned two pages. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debt. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God for the bread set out on the tables, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, 
and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest, descended from Aaron, is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary are kept, and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay, we will not neglect the house of our God. All right, so here's the thing. We already know that we're too busy. We're, technology was supposed to... First off, our paperless society, when we went computers, created more paper than we had before we were a paperless society. Likewise, technology was supposed to make life easier. It's so fun to read the stuff in the 60s and 70s when they said, hey, we're making computers and people will only work 20 hours a week from now on. That was back when usually dad could work and mom could stay home with the kids and most people can't afford that these days. The economy isn't that good and most families, mom and dad both need to go to work if they're going to make ends meet. Our world is busy and I think it's busier than it ever has been. I get it. And I also am not a fan of gimmicks. Gimmicks pass, they fade, churches try gimmicks. We don't need gimmicks. We know what we need to do. We need to rise up to the occasion and be the church. Um, Here in Nehemiah chapter 10, the people heard what Nehemiah was saying and they got it. They didn't, it, it was, you can use the word revival, you can use whatever, something clicked. And they got it. They understood at this point God's incredible faithfulness and love despite their sin. And they worshipped him. And they confessed their sin. And they made a pledge. A pledge of purity. A pledge of honoring the Sabbath. Of giving service and tithes and offerings. They made a commitment to God. You know, in that sense, it feels a bit like those good old-fashioned tent revivals, right? But... But it, it wasn't a social event. It wasn't, I, I've been to a lot of revivals in my life. Sometimes it's just an excuse for getting, it's not meant to be an excuse, that's probably a harsh word. But sometimes at the end of the day what people remember is the food and the, and the fun and the fellowship. But if it doesn't change our hearts, it wasn't a true revival. These people were revived in their faith in ways they weren't, they, they hadn't been to that point. They rekindled their relationship with God, they grew closer to him. Let me, let me be clear. Stuff at churches, potlucks, church camp, VBS, these things are great if they draw us close to God. If they don't, they were just an activity and we've missed the point. Um, today, we are called to make a commitment to our God, as, as the people did back then. What commitment? I don't know, because we're all in a different place. 
For some, it might be a commitment to attending church regularly if we don't come regularly. For some, it might be a commitment to give, to try tithing. Again, tithing isn't a command for us in the church. It was for the Israelites. But I think it's a good example. I think if they could do it, we should consider trying it. Maybe it's a commitment to pray more to daily or read your Bible daily. I don't know where you're at. We're, we are, we, we are individuals. We do have our individual relationships with God. But the individuals make up the church. And if all the individuals make a commitment to renew their faith and to serve God wholeheartedly, the church, will, the church will prosper not because the goal of the church is to prosper. That's actually not the goal. That's like saying the goal of a pen is to write. The goal of, a, of, of my ballpoint pens, I want to make stories. <laughs> I want to, I want, it's, not just, it's not just words. The words actually... Do, th- do something. The goal of the church is not to raise our numbers. The goal of the church is to bring Christ to people and to help people who have found him to become even more Christ-like. My relationship with God needs work. I'm not perfect. Um, there are things I need to do to improve and become more Christ-like. Um, take, take the time to think about what is God calling you to do to step up your faith because if we're not growing in our faith, we're coasting. And we're in a rut. Um, Today we're called to renew that relationship with God. Is the church going or is it coming? Is it about human tradition? Is it about just attendance? You know, the question was once asked, I heard a preacher ask the question, when do do services begin at your church? And his response was, we get out at about 11.30 and that's when I expect my my church to serve the community. And I like that answer. Service begins when, when the service ends. Um, when we serve others. So our time of deci- it's our time of decision. What de- I, I don't know. What decision do you need to make? We are called to not just accept Christ as Savior, but to become Christ-like. If you haven't accepted him as Savior, I want to talk with you. If you have accepted him, if you want to talk about what's next, let's, let's talk. Everybody, it's a little bit different. Ultimately, we're all called to be Christ-like. Um, but we all have different places in our life where that needs to work. If we need to talk, let's talk. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.